When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The Rose Water Collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Molly. So over the holidays, Molly, I, well, on Christmas Eve, to be specific, Mm -hmm. I was carrying out a uh, long-lived tradition in my life. On Christmas Eve, I watched It's a Wonderful Life. Frank Capra's 1946 classic. I'm sure plenty of people out there have seen it. And just for a quick recap, in case you have not seen It's a Wonderful Life, and you really should see It's a Wonderful Life if you haven't, there, George Bailey, the main character played by Jimmy Stewart, has this nightmare, essentially, in which he sees his wife, Mary, and what would have happened to her life if he had never come around mm-hmm. and never had lasted the moon and swept her off her feet. And he runs into her, leaving the library, because horror of horror, she's become a spinster librarian, never getting married, and she has a dowdy outfit on, and she's wearing glasses, and she just looks so sad. Her beauty is withered up. Whereas in, uh, if he had come around, even after giving birth to four children, she looks great. She looks awesome. Didn't look a day over 18. Uh, so I, uh, laying there, eating, eating cookies and hot chocolate and whatever other things I was stuffing my face with all, all Christmas holiday, I thought I had a mom stuff moment, Molly. You did? Even on holiday. I said, I actually turned to my mom. This is true. I turned to my mom and said, Mom. Why are librarians always spinsters? Where on earth did that come from? And I feel like maybe we might have talked about that moment in the movie in our spinster podcast because it is so iconic of uh, the the unmarried woman. Yeah. The worst that can happen to this the woman. The worst thing that you can do for yourself is not get married and end up working in a library and wear glasses. Yeah. It's, it's I think, one of the most pitiful moments in the, in the movie for any yeah. woman. And so we took Kristen's mom stuff moment from the holidays, and we're bringing it to you now, the answer to the question you asked your mom, what is the deal with all these librarian stereotypes? Yeah, because you brought up a good point. Once I once I told you about my It's a Wonderful Life question, you said, well, on the other side of it, yeah, there's the Spencer stereotype, but then there's also the hot librarian. Oh, yeah, you do Behind, not have to go far to find pictures of all, hot librarians. All she's got to do is take off her bun, take off those glasses, and whoa, who knew? She's crazy. She's beautiful and unbridled. She knows where all the sex books are cataloged. Mm-hmm. 
So we wanted to kind of unpack all these stereotypes, figure out where they came from, and ultimately show that there's not obviously much truth to any of them. Although the one thing that we can say is that... Is that all librarians do wear buns. True. Yes. Because it's a very fashionable hairstyle. You've said during a podcast that buns, that's what helps you get through an episode. Yeah, I do like the bun. It's your power stance. All right. um, Now, the one thing we could say is that we do have this idea of most librarians as female. And according to the 2002 U.S. statistical abstract figures, 82% of librarians in the United States are women. So we do have this um, idea that a librarian is typically a woman. Yes. And we have Melville Dewey to thank for the feminization of librarianship, which also happens to be the title of an article that we read by Tawny Sferdlin. And Melville Dewey, if that rings a bell since we're talking about libraries, is the man who created the Dewey Decimal System. But he also championed women as librarians. And he got Columbia College, which later became Columbia University, and he petitioned for the library school at Columbia College, which would later become Columbia University, to start admitting women in 1887 because he thought gals would be great in this program. Although, unfortunately, he is not the uh, feminist champion that we might (laughs) hope because the reason he championed women is he thought they'd be very good at dull, repetitive work. Yes. And even though he saw it as, you know, something that even women could do, he was very uh, terse with women who did not meet his very exacting standards of quality. If you did not immediately excel in his library scholarship program, you were out. Um, and he has the reputation of a bit of a skeevy guy, frequently being accused of sexual harassment and, uh, and other assorted lovely things. But we still have to give him credit for getting the women into the program because at that time, 1880s, there were not a lot of occupational opportunities for women. So pretty quickly, women carved out librarianship as an employment sector that they really thrived in. But it's also still a very low-paying job. And uh, at the time as well, male library administrators were totally fine with employing women because they would accept lower wages than they would have to pay other men. Right. And the men throughout the centuries have still maintained those managerial positions that are higher paid, whereas the women uh, tend to be the lower paid in the profession, despite it being a low-paying profession, there's still a pretty wide gender gap between the male librarians and the female librarians. Mm-hmm. But Molly, what about these stereotypes of librarians as either spencers or unbridled sex goddesses just waiting to be let loose? Well, you know, let's go back to the Middle Ages, Kristen. We probably didn't think we'd go back that far. But according to an article by Will Manley, and it is not the last time we're going to mention old Will Manley on this podcast, Uh, The theory of the sexless librarian probably gained additional credibility during the Middle Ages when celibate monk librarians safeguarded the intellectual treasures of the ancient world. So early on, uh, and also he mentions in that article that becoming a librarian was something that you kind of were born into. Mm -hmm. It was uh, since it was an exalted position that had to do with knowledge. Not anyone in those days could be a librarian. So it was very much this higher position and you had to be, you know, a monk to do it. So it was it was sexless from the start. But the idea of the sexless female, we don't get to that until 1949. 
Yes. Will Manley tracked down the June 1949 issue of American Libraries, and he stumbled upon an article titled Search for an Assistant or Mortician by Clara E. Breed, who is a city librarian for San Diego. And Breed was a, a little bit upset about this magazine article that she had seen a few months earlier in which the author, Carl E. Zeisler, speculated about whether libraries had become morgues of culture. And then he also went on to claim that women, uh, that librarians were just self-effacing introverts and that 78% of them were quote, spinsters who throw up their hands and retire behind their catalog cards when confronted with dwindling budgets and public indifference. Now, the thing is, Breed's main complaint, this whole image crisis and the idea of them being too introverted in the face of dwindling budgets and public indifference is something that librarians are facing today as well. But it all starts back in 1949, just a year before the Music Man would come out immortalizing the phrase Mary and the Librarian. Right. And Mary and the Librarian is this character who, uh, the main female character in the movie, who refuses to find a man, very shy, retiring, and, uh, and you know. She's a spinster by choice, I think she describes herself at one and, point. And she is sort of the quintessential librarian in terms of the bun and whatnot. So we've got 1946, It's a Wonderful Life. 1949, Zeisler writing his uh, spinster thing. 1950, The Music Man. This is a very key time in cementing that um, librarian wearing glasses, living alone, wearing dowdy clothes. She, you know, they're buttoned up to the very top. They install extra buttons so no skin can be shown. Uh, this is where we get really the buttoned up. Uh, Spencer Librarian image. And this image is repeated constantly on film, and it goes back even before It's a Wonderful Life to the 1932 Barbara Stanwyck movie, Forbidden, when it depicts the Spencer Library. And this is coming from a study that Molly and I found, and there are actually, this is one of many studies, actually, that reviews... There are so many studies about movies and libraries. Yeah, that reviews the image of librarians in movies, because typically it's, uh, you know, we think of the, you know, the woman in horn-rimmed glasses to, uh, shushing the characters in Breakfast at Tiffany's, or you have more of the, the young librarian who's just kind of waiting for a man to come sweep her off her feet and throw away her glasses. Right, and so that Barbara Stanwyck movie, Forbidden, 1932, uh, according to the study, was the first sound film to depict a librarian, and when she arrives to go to work, all the boys call Old Lady Four Eyes, Old Lady Four Eyes. They call me that when I walk into work, too, Molly. So Barbara Stanwyck. I mean, <laughs> if Barbara Stanwyck can't get any respect, then you sh- you're here, got a long road to hoe, Kristen yeah. Conger. And I'm not even a librarian. But this study is, uh, it did come out in 2009. And so uh, this study, unlike some of the other ones, can take it up to more of the modern era. Movies like The Mummy with Rachel Weisz being a librarian, uh, Party Girl, the, the story of a party girl who becomes a librarian. And it looks at more modern librarians in uh, film and finds that maybe the stereotype is slightly changing, that, you know, they're less likely to wear buns. They're less likely <laughs> to wear glasses. Movies will actually dare show a male librarian. Yes. And uh, they do fall in love. So it's it's starting to come around. But, well, but you know, the, the authors worry that we still have these know-it-all librarians who are unapproachable or we have these spinster librarians who can barely de- stand to deal with people and just want to be left alone with the books. So 
It's a slow transition. Although even from older studies uh, covering movies and librarians, they do conclude that a lot of the times, at least when the librarian plays a larger role in a film, she's usually, and yes, it is usually female, but she is usually younger and more on the end of the spectrum of the, of the hot girl behind the glasses. Mm. So, so the ideas are slowly changing. And I think that will probably please the people who are actually working in the library industry today because there are tons of trend pieces now about how librarians and information scientists and whatever you call your particular position after getting this master's in library science, how they desperately want to be seen as cool and relevant and approachable. And, you know, I think that's really good job security because in these days of the Internet, we need to realize that we still need librarians who are like walking search engines. They are like one article. Yes. And since, especially with public libraries that are funded by tax dollars and with, you know, so many state and local governments running large deficits, library budgets are getting axed left and right. And if we, you know, only think of librarians as these stodgy women who are just keeping the noise levels down, then they seem like useless items on a line items on a budget. Exactly. Now we've talked about the Spencer librarian. Shall we, shall we talk about the sexy librarian? Yes. Please. And by which I mean, should we talk about Will Manley again? Because oh, yes. Will Manley used to work at the Wilson library bulletin. And in 1992, he was, he sent out a survey uh, that he got 5,000 responses to about the sex habits and other sexual views of librarians. And this was so controversial to the library bulletin that they fired him and they did not allow the results to be published until he did so on his blog more than a decade later. Yeah. So the 1992 librarians and sex survey found that librarians pretty much bait break any stereotype of being boring old spinsters. Mm-hmm. Nay unsuspecting public, they have a spicy side. Specifically, they seem to enjoy reading The Joy of Sex. 91% of people, and this is from 1992, but still, it's 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 fun to go over. Uh, 91% of respondents had read The Joy of Sex. Only 4% were still virgins at the time of the survey. And 40% believed that Playboy should be in libraries. And I think that's interesting because one of the articles you read talked about how we have this idea of librarians as so sexless and spinster-like. But these are the ones who are deciding what's going to be in libraries. Right. So they are one of the professions that is most confronted with what's appropriate for libraries in terms of uh, censoring sexual content, deciding what's too violent. And by and large, they're not as conservative as we think, as manly statistics prove. And so it's it's showing us that even though we think of these librarians as spinsters, in fact, they do have liberal accepting viewpoints on some of these issues and uh, can really cultivate libraries of of wide, you know, interests. And while librarians are not only battling this 50, 60-year-old image crisis that started, you know, with the, the June 1949 article that we were talking about, and also now with these dwindling budgets and uh, the question of whether or not their libraries are even going to be around for them to come to, they also have to deal with, oh, sexual harassment, because this uh, 1992 survey also found that 78% of female librarians felt that they had been sexually harassed 
by a patron. So, you know, it's tough out there for a librarian. Although, you know, I don't want to minimalize that, that statistic, but can I tell you two of the weirdest statistics in that, in that study? Yes. 22% of the respondents believe that libraries should have condom dispensers in their bathrooms. Which makes sense because a lot of librarians have had sex in their very own libraries. 20% had, had had sex in the library. So, even, you know, like I said, I don't want to put those side by side with the sexual harassment thing because no one should have to be sexually harassed at their job. But uh, like we said, there's, you know, it's a fine line between this over-sexualized librarian that you can feel free to harass, which you can't, and the one that's the spinster who whose life was ruined because Jimmy Stewart was never born. Right. Because there was no man to for her to take her bun down for. <laughs> so uh, it's it really is kind of a weird image crisis. And uh, the, like we said, there are a lot of new articles that are trying to put forth the idea that librarians are hip, approachable, that you'll find male librarians yeah. hidden throughout different forms of libraries. And uh, I know we've got lots of listeners out there who have been librarians or who are going to library school. And Molly, I got to say... Since you and I do not have the power to appropriate tax dollars, more tax dollars to our libraries, which you and I do find indispensable in mm. our research for this very podcast. Very true. The least that we can do for all of the librarians out there listening, and I hope there are some librarians out there listening, is bust through this stereotype and figure out why and where it started. Rewrite the book on it. And I feel good about it, Molly. You feel like you exhausted the car catalog of... I think that we... I'm trying checked to get some out, library puns. I think we checked out a lot of interesting sources of false information about librarians. And we're only returning the ones with uh, good information, and the rest <laughs> can just get overdue fines. Okay. All right. So we should stop all of these <laughs> awful library puns and open this up to our listeners. If you have anything to say about libraries, librarians, or if you are a librarian and want to share your experience with us, please do. Email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And Molly, let's read a couple emails. Okay, I have one here from Jenny, and it's about the Child Free Podcast. Jenny writes, from a young age, I felt very strongly that I wanted to be a mother. I got married, earned my college degree, and advanced in my career. However, I never felt completely fulfilled until I became a mother. I truly believe that I was born to be a mom. That being said, I think it is narrow-minded for people to think that what brings them the most happiness is what would bring someone else happiness. We are all different. We have different likes, talents, desires, and capabilities. I don't think everyone is equipped to be a parent, just like I don't think I have the ability to make important business decisions, perform brain surgery, or maintain a clever podcast. I do not think less of someone who doesn't want kids, and I hope that they don't think less of me because I do. I'm happy that our society is becoming more accepting of the choice to not have children, if someone's life is happy and complete without kids, then there should be no pressure to have them. So there you go. An endorsement of the child-free lifestyle from someone who has children. Well, I've got another child-free response here as well. And this is from John, who is child and relationship-free by choice. It is my feeling that I have very specific likes and dislikes and that it would be unfair of me to force other people to live as I do. I like my life, but I know that not everyone would. Also, from a young age, I've believed there are too many people in the world and that it's extremely unfair and selfish to add to the population problem. Pollution, food shortages, global warming, and a host of other problems would be alleviated if there were fewer people. I'm a teacher and I love children. However, my love for children brings me to the belief that there are too many of them, that too many of them are subjected to unfortunate lives, which would be improved if there were fewer people. So there you go. John? 
And if you have thoughts you'd like to send our way, our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also shoot us a line on Facebook over to Facebook page. And you can follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And lastly, you can read what Molly and I are writing during the week over at our blog, Stuff Mom Never Told You, at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's Rosewater Collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.